I'm so glad you're with us here on the Clark Howard Show, where it's all about you and that wallet of yours. I want you to learn ideas from me so you can keep more of what you make. Coming up in just a few minutes, how about you stole money from someone with dementia and got away with it? Wait till you hear today's Clark Rage. It's a loophole involving insurance salespeople. And then coming up yet later, credit card, debit card, prepaid card, stored value card, they have different rules, different protections. I want to tell you how that plays out for you and your wallet. I also want to express my gratitude to the wonderful people I was with in Tulsa, Oklahoma for a few days. I had the privilege to sponsor my um, eighth Habitat for Humanity home in Tulsa that I had built along with other sponsors and with uh, listeners, podcast listeners, TV viewers, as we uh, raised the walls on this Habitat home. And I just love community coming together to make a difference in an era where it feels so much like, how do you make a difference? It's one way that I've found has worked very well in concert with followers of Team Clark, either our websites or radio, TV, newspaper, whatever method you connect to me. I appreciate you getting involved with community activities where we can make the world a better place, one family at a time, one house at a time. So we have a very different way of dealing with travel now because of terrorism, and particularly the terrorist attacks of nearly 18 years ago have made a lot of things change. One of them that was passed forever ago and is now only going into full implementation in a phase-in, how long does it take us in the United States to get anything done, are the new driver's licenses that are designed to be tamper-proof and to prevent a terrorist from passing through security as if they are you using a false ID. And if you're not familiar with real ID, it's where in the upper corner of your driver's license, there's a gold star. And that star means that you have been fully verified and within the tolerances of how the rules work, that your ID is tamper-proof. So the deadline for you being able to fly only with a, a, a real ID driver's license or state-issued ID has moved back over and over and over again, but now it's really happening. And because I travel so much, I was they must have some kind of list they work by. I was required already to go get a new driver's license issued and my license was terminated early so that I have a real ID driver's license. But the signs are going up in airports around the country and like so many other things, you're in a hurry, you may be agitated or have anxiety when you travel, you may not see the signs, but you're going to be required to fly either with a federal issued ID like a military ID a passport, something along those lines, 
or if you're traveling with a state ID, you will not be allowed through security if you don't have the real ID. So the full implementation of it is next year, and like so many things, a lot of people will wait till the last minute, and that's a terrible idea because then states will be backed up. It'll be hard to get an appointment if your state has appointments to get that license. So if you do travel regularly and you don't have that star on your license, go to your state motor vehicle department or driver's license bureau or whatever the website is and see the requirements to get the real ID driver's license just so you eliminate any hassles. Now, one hassle this summer is going to be less of a hassle in a lot of major airports. There's a technology I told you about, I feel like it was a couple of years ago, that is a new scanner for carry-on bags that no longer requires you take your stuff out to have it screened if you're not in pre-check. Well, they make you take your liquids out, your laptop, your tablet, blah, 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 blah. So this uh, device has passed the tests, and the feds are going to be putting these in all the busy airports at first, and the design is to have it in place this summer. So what will happen will really confuse you You may fly one way where you're told, leave everything in your bag, fly home and be told, take everything out of your bag that you've had to. But it's because these machines are $300,000 each. And so they're pretty expensive devices. And so that's why they'll go in the busiest security lines first and then later end up being in others. And there are specific there's specific information about the real ID thing by state. And do we have that, Joel, at Clark.com? Yeah, I think we do. I'll, okay. I'll, I'll double check, though. All right. So you'll know what the requirements are in your state for getting the real ID. Jack is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Jack. Hi. How you doing, Clark? Great. Thank you, Jack. You are a would-be real estate investor. Yes, that's the goal. Well, you got a couple of them here. So tell me what you're thinking of doing. Yeah, I've always been kind of interested in that HGTV house flipping mindset. Um, I'm at a place right now where I'm in college. I have that free time to potentially invest in big projects like that. It's just I don't have the capital up front to invest uh, in those kind of flippable houses. I was wondering if you knew of any uh, potential investment pools or mortgages that someone uh, who may just have a fairly recent credit history uh, could get themselves into to potentially make those purchases. All right. So reality is when somebody does what you're thinking of doing, where you have plenty of enthusiasm, desire to perform and the time to do so, but not the money or the credit history or employment history, usually it's going to be a family member or friend who you go into a deal together with. And they're the money and you're the muscle. And together you split the, the profits with your sweat equity being responsible for um, what creates income for you. And for the individual, they make their money by putting their money at risk and having faith in you that you're going to get this done. But I want to say something to you. Those 
TV shows about buying a house and flipping it, as intriguing as those are, I believe the real money is made buying a house that's maybe sad, but you fix it up and you turn it into a rental property. That that's the long-term ticket to real financial security versus buying one with the intention of flipping it in six to nine months. So, Clark, with that, is it? would you recommend doing that in a place that's like mainly a city, or would you recommend doing that in kind of like a Key West, Cape Cod area? No, I don't recommend that you do so in a high-end vacation area. I, I think you do much better in an area where the, the market you're looking at are people who are involuntary renters. You know, if you move up in the income scale, people are renters because they made a lifestyle choice. And so if you look at what happens with pricing patterns as housing prices move up, rents don't move up in tandem with housing prices. So at the lower end of the scale, with homes for rent or apartments for rent, a big percent of your target market are people who they're not even really thinking about buying a house. They're not in a place in their life to do so. And so that's where you get the biggest bang for your buck. And producer Joel follows an old saw standard real estate formula. Who Joel's got five rental properties. And give Jack your simple formula that so many real estate investors of individual properties go by. Yeah, I think there are certainly a lot of things you can and should consider, but the 1% rule is just the quickest, dirtiest, easiest, back-of-the-envelope kind of math you can you can do. So if you're buying, let's say, a home that costs $150,000, you want to be able to get about $1,500 a month in rent for that home. So if it meets those standards, and the home's not in total disrepair, right? So you want to take in the, the cost of, of the home and then the initial yeah. uh, amount they're going to have to put into the home to get it ready to rent up front. And if it meets that 1% rule, that usually means it's a, it's a pretty solid buy. And as you move up the price point, like you mentioned, Cape Cod, as you move into more expensive communities, you cannot maintain the 1% rule. You're going to end up paying a lot more for the property than the rent you can get for it. You'll never be able to get 1% rent out of it. A lot of people buy properties at uh, resorts or vacation spots or whatever with the idea that it's where they're going to live someday and they're just trying to bring some rent in to defray expenses. And so they'll violate that standard 1% rule. But if your goal is to make money, buy a property, you want to find neighborhoods where, uh, where people are, you hope that the homes in the neighborhood are mostly owner-occupied, but where they're at a price point where you can rent out and make a decent return on your money from very early. Ashley's with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Ashley. Hi, Clark. Thanks so much for having me. I've been listening to you for 28 years now. Wow. Wow, that's pretty amazing. Yeah, my parents always had you on in the car when they picked us up from elementary school, so it's been a very long time. <laughs> You're making me really sound old. For, for those uh, newer <laughs> listeners who don't know this, I've been on the air 32 years. So right. you've been, the, you're you've on been along AMC the way too. most of the time. 
Right. <laughs> I don't know life without you, Clark. Wow. <laughs> I'm only 35 now. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, let's see if I can be of service to you since you okay. were abused in second grade having to listen to me coming forward. <laughs> but it's been some great advice over the years. So I have a question for you regarding um, tax returns and a possible payment plan. So just to give you an idea, in 2018, I'm in sales, so I had a really great sales year. I also took advantage of the stock market last year and sold some stocks because the market did really great um, over the summer and through the fall. So now I'm at the point where I saved a lot of money. Just got married in February. Instead of having a wedding, my husband and I decided to invest our money in building a home. So we're currently building a home um, with intentions to close in July. But I got a hefty surprise for my tax accountant when it came to how much I owe the IRS. Because I was a renter and I essentially owe nothing. And because of the changes with, um, with taxes lately, as far as what we could write off, I don't have anything to claim um, so I was wondering, would it be best to do a payment plan with the IRS, knowing that we're only going to do it for a couple of months and then pay the bill off fully? Or should I just go ahead and pay the bill off completely? Have the decks clear and pay that bill off. Okay. Just, just pay it when you pay your tax. You don't want to, are you going to have to get a mortgage when you finish this house? Yes. So what we did, um, we didn't want to borrow too much money from the bank. So we have a very large sum that we're prepared to come to the table with in July. Um, We also will have still a good savings there, as well as we have a budget, a good savings right now for furniture. So we have these several different buckets. And so definitely with everything you just said, definitely just pay your tax bill. Okay. And even if it means you put a little less down on the home, it sounds like you're really prepared to do a substantial down payment, even if you did just pay the IRS what you owe them, pay them. Okay. And be done with them. Okay, and, perfect. You know, this is, a, this is what I call a success tax. You made a lot of money um, in your employment. You made a lot of money in investments. And now you got to pay the tax bill. And that's a good problem to have because if you didn't have the income, you wouldn't have the tax bill. Right, exactly. So, so just pay that thing off and be done with it, and continued financial success to you. Today's Clark Rageous moment is something that I had to wait to talk about till I calmed down, and I still haven't calmed down. So I'm just going to try to self-regulate because I am so very upset about a story involving an insurance salesperson who, as a client he had sold insurance to, as the person was uh, in the latest stage of life dying with dementia, got this individual to sign over the proceeds of her life insurance to the insurance salesperson, who then got a huge amount of money from her insurance, $500,000, And the state regulators, because insurance is regulated at the state level, the insurance regulators in the state of Maryland said, yeah, it's fine. We're looking the other way. We don't care. This is one of the real holes 
in the system, and there's a long-form story about this. I've seen shorter ones, but there's a really long-form story about this abuse in the New York Times, this elder abuse. And some states have laws specifically governing elder abuse, which this would come under. But how hideous that someone who sold a life insurance policy could get someone who has dementia to sign away ownership at time of death to this individual who runs off with the money on the policy that he sold and the relatives the policy was intended for get nothing and the state of Maryland says, yeah, fine with us. This is hideous and you need to know that insurance salespeople, most are very honest, decent people, but they operate in such a twilight zone of lacking regulation that you've got to be so cautious and aware whenever you buy insurance. Great to have you here on the Clark Howard Show, where it's about you learning ways to save more and spend less, and don't let anyone ever rip you off. Now, our web address, Clark.com, you like deals? Check out our deal site, ClarkDeals.com. Deal or no deal. You buy something on a piece of plastic and the retailer goes bust before you get it or the airline goes bust before you fly or the cruise line goes bust before you sail. What happens to your money? Well, you know, if you pull out plastic out of your wallet and you look at it, and you pull out a debit card, it'll say on it, it'll have a Visa logo, or it'll have a MasterCard logo. And you pay for something with it, and you think, oh, I'm safe here. Or you pull out another card that has a Visa or MasterCard logo, and it's just a straight credit card. Well, uh, there was an airline that went bust a few weeks ago called Wow Air, and this was true to form. People who paid with a Visa or MasterCard that was a debit card lost all their money. People who paid with a Visa, MasterCard, American Express, or Discover that was an actual credit card get their money back. It's because the laws went into effect in different eras. And when the credit card rules went into effect for consumers, Washington was not enthralled with just whoever gave them money. The debit card was created much later, at a time where Washington only marched the drummer of who gave them money. And banks give massive money to politicians. And so the politicians have chosen never to extend to debit cards the protections of credit cards. And that's why you'll hear me call a debit card the piece of trash Visa or MasterCard, piece of trash, because it does not come with, even though it looks the same, it doesn't come with those protections. So there was a big fuss last week that a third kind of card, the stored value or prepaid card, that those cards came with basically zero protections. And if your card was stolen, Unless the issuer decided they wanted to do something for you, you could lose all your money. If there was fraud that took place on it, you lost all your money. Just every possible way, you lost your money. Well, now, in a Washington compromise, 
the stored value in prepaid cards now have the, the low-level protections that a debit card has, but don't have what a credit card has. So no matter what logo's on it, you know, the stored value and prepaid cards come with every kind of logo you think of. American Express does them. I, I don't know if Discover does, but Visa and MasterCard do a big business in these stored value and prepaid cards. I was in Dollar Tree a couple of days ago, and right at the checkout was a prepaid Visa card you could buy for a dollar. And then, I mean, you then had to put money on it, but it was right there. And so it looks like, wow, I can have, I can have a Visa card. All I got to do is buy it at the Dollar Tree. But the thing is, the fees that come with these historically have not been well disclosed under these new rules. They will be, uh, there'll be better disclosure, not outstanding. But all things being equal in your life, know that these various forms of, let's just say, Visa cards or MasterCards have completely different protections and rules, and nothing beats in terms of protecting you as a consumer a regular old credit card. And really, there is no, no, no justification at all for why these other forms of Visas and MasterCards don't have the same protections. But the answer is obvious. It's that Washington doesn't care about you and me. Your individual congressman, your two senators, do not care about you, your life, your wallet. They only care about who fattens their wallet. And that's these big companies that give them all the money. And just imagine the banks that led to so much hardship in our country last decade, the banking scandals that led to the Great Recession, so many people losing their homes, losing their jobs and all that, that no one's ever been punished, no one's ever gone to prison for all the banking scandals, all the criminal acts, and the bank still reigns supreme in Washington, being able to use their money to buy influence however they want with your individual congressman, your two senators, and that is wrong. Who's looking out for you and me up there or down there, depending on where you are in the country, or over there in Washington? Barron is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Barron. Well, hello, Clark. How are you? Great. Thank you, Barron. How's your life going? Oh, life is very good for me. Thank you so much for taking my call. Sure. Listen, about 10 years ago, my son was bitten by a chow dog in the face. Oh, no. We, oh, no. Yeah, it, it's not that. It's not too bad. He's going to be okay. You know, he's 19 now. And we settled out of court for $28,000. And so what we did at that time, going with the facts that we had, we put it all in a 529 plan and uh, for his college savings. Well, now he's 19, going on 20, and he is in the junior college welding program, loves welding, not going to go to a four-year school. My question for you, Clark, is can I – so it's made, uh, what, about 5000 in interest over all these years. Could I leave the interest in for the other kids to go to school, take out his principal 28 without penalty? No. The way it works is – 
if you have other kids, yes, and they're likely to go to college, leave it right now with your with your son, who's you said twenty eight. So no, sir, there's twenty eight thousand. He's twenty. Twenty zero. Leave it. Yeah. Leave it in his name as the beneficiary, and then if one of the siblings decides to go to college. Just change the beneficiary designation. That's a non-taxable event, and the money would continue to grow tax-free. And the only reason you would do something else is if your 20-year-old needs the money right now. Right. But if you Does do it? if you do withdrawals and it's not used for college, on a ratio basis, whatever you pull out would be subject to tax. Ouch. Based on the growth. That's why... The plans are set up to give a fantastic benefit if used for college and ugly punishment if the money's not used for college. So, so is there that, a light like like maybe when he's twenty seven or can you find or does it ever no age that no age that he would age uh-huh. out of having that account. So whatever point that uh, if no sibling ended up needing the money for college, at whatever point if, if the money flowed to him, he would be able to take that money, pay tax on it at his tax rate, plus a 10% penalty. Now, the only advantage to doing that this year while he's a student, if, you, if you're not really keen on having the money move to another of his siblings, is that right now while he's a student, his income level is very low. So even though he'd have the 10% penalty, the overall tax bill would be lower. Okay. I see. You know, that's the only thing about going into these things. These are great plans, great ideas, but, you know, when they're 10 years old, you just try to make the right decision. You know, you're thinking, okay, he's going to go to college. And he was up until about a year ago. So, um, And you're sure he's not going to change his mind at some point later and decide when he's going to school? Well, Clark, that's a very good point. What if he does get into welding, hates it, gets hurt, and needs to go back to school? The money would be there, right? Right. That's an idea. So unless the money, unless there's a pressing need for the money, the best no. answer is to punt and just let okay. it continue to grow. If you if you liquidated it, the way it would work is there'd be if you just liquidate it, there'd be tax on the five thousand plus the ten percent, so five hundred dollars in penalty. On the five thousand of gain, it'd be the uh, five hundred dollars in penalty plus the tax that would be owed on the fund itself on the gain, and so that is an alternative. But the best advice I can give normally, since there are other siblings, just let it sit there. Bren is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Bren. Hi. Good afternoon. So, Bren, you are at a decision tree in your life with your wheels. <laughs> That's right, I am. I believe I've heard you talk about this before. Uh, and I think I thought, I think you said you could negotiate your residual amount. All right, so what we're to, talking about here, you've been in a lease for how long of your vehicle? A uh, little over three years. It, it, it comes up for action at the end of May. Okay. So is your lease with a major automaker's leasing arm, or is it with a bank? Dealership. Well, just because it's a dealership, that doesn't mean it's... Oh, it's not with a bank. It's with them. Oh, it is with the automaker? Yes. All right. 
So automakers generally will not negotiate on residual value. And the reason they don't is they don't want to alienate their franchise dealers. Because if they make a deal with you, then it hurts the dealer two ways. Because the vehicles often will end up back on dealers' used car lots if it's turned in, and the dealer loses a chance to sell you something else or lease you something else. So the banks that, that don't have car dealers or anything, they're the ones that are all ears and want to negotiate as you come to the end of a lease because they don't want the vehicle. Same thing for if a credit union ever arranges a lease for you. They don't want it. So with the automakers, when they do a lease, they probably would rather you just make a deal with you, but that's not how it's going to play. So then it brings up a different question. The residual value that it says you'd have to pay to buy the vehicle at the end of the lease, is it a good deal for you or not? I think so. I checked um, Edmunds and whatever, and the price that they're asking is in line with what I see on there, and I'll drive it until the wheels come off, so, or so, almost come off, as you say. So the advantage of that is you know the vehicle. You, It's not an unknown like most used vehicle purchases would be. You know it, you've driven it, and so it makes it a much safer used vehicle purchase than buying one that has somebody else's history with it. So how many miles do you have on it versus how many miles you were allowed in the lease? I'm short about a 1,000, I guess. So you're like right at the expected, pretty much the expected range of miles you'd use. Yes. So that would eliminate one of the financial arguments for buying a lease vehicle. So then it comes down strictly to this. Have you, if you've loved the vehicle, then that would make it a great argument to buy the vehicle. Can you pay cash for it or will you be taking out a new loan? I can pay cash for it. So that's great. If you can pay cash, just at the end of the lease, let them know you're going to exercise your right to buy it and just buy it, own it, and drive it. I have one question. Yeah. How would I be certain that it is leased from the automaker? I said that it was. I think it is, but I'm if not. If you go sure. look at your lease, it will have the automaker's name in it. Usually, if it is a, a manufacturer's lease, if it's a bank, it's going to have the bank name on it. And so that's how you would tell the actual leasing documents themselves. Okay. And, okay. and then, again, the, if it is a bank, make an offer lower than what the stated residual is. Make it about $1,500 below that, since the value seems to be equivalent from what you've looked online, and just negotiate, because it's worth it to them to not have to take that thing back. It's worth maybe, uh, maybe not $1,500, but it's worth a decent amount of money for them not to have to have your vehicle in their hands. Ryan is with us on the Clark Howard Show. And Ryan, you're thinking of giving your 401k plan the heave-ho. What have you found out about your 401k? 
Um, well, when I was looking um, at the transactions online, there was some steep uh, fees every month. Um, every month they were taking uh, over $60 out in just fees. And when I compare that to um, my Roth IRA, I see virtually no fees being taken out. So I didn't know um, which one was better. Do I continue to keep putting in money in the 401k or, or the, is it better to move that money to my Roth IRA? All right. Well, you've done a heroic thing because nobody ever actually looks at the fees in their 401k. Uh-huh. And I commend you for that. And the reason that your fees are so high, Kim has put up the name of the company is you're with an insurance company for your 401k, and they charge massive fees for managing a 401k. So you're paying both commissions, and then in addition to that, you're paying investment fees. So so it would not be unusual for someone at your company to, if they stop contributing, to have less money at the end of the year than they started even in a year that investments did well. Because the fees are such a huge strain. So the fact that you've looked is great. Is there a match on the 401k where you work? Yes. I would put into the 401k up to the match. Okay. And then other than that, don't put any money in that 401k because the investment fees and commissions are such a huge drag. And instead, I would do what you've, you've had this desire to do and do the Roth IRA and if you go with one of the low-cost companies for a Roth IRA, over time, dollar for dollar, you'll make a ton more in that than you'll make other than the employer match in the 401k. Okay. Now, okay. Uh, are you married? Yes. So your wife can also contribute to a Roth IRA. Okay. And so you could you could get ultra-low-cost investing. I've got you know my low-cost favorite children companies sure. on Clark.com. And that would be much more efficient use of your money than doing it through the employer plan. I'm just curious, do you work for a really, really small company? I do. Yeah, so that's why the owners are trying to do a good thing by having a 401k, but don't realize how unbelievably expensive it is having that 401k with a high-cost insurance company. 401ks should basically never be with an insurance company if you want your employees to actually make any money. You're listening to The Clark Howard Show. Thanks for joining us today. The Clark Howard Show is produced by Kim Drobes, Joel Larsgaard, Deborah Reese, and Jim Ayers. And remember, 24 hours a day, we're there to serve you at Clark.com and ClarkDeals.com.